Well, hey church, my name's Rowan, one of the pastors here at EV. And today we get to the last judge in the book of Judges, although there's still one more week of craziness in the way that God's people go. But of all the senses in the human body, the one I would least like to lose is sight. Like sight is so important. It's how we observe the world. It gives color and contrast and direction and understanding. Now, I don't really want to lose any senses. (laughs) And I take my hat off to those who have lived their lives with one or more of their senses missing. But one of the questions the next section of the book of Judges raises is, whose sight matters? Whose sight matters? We each place so much value on the way we see the world. We evaluate everything according to what we see is right and good. But as the next chapter of Judges begins, it begins like this. Judges 13 verse 1. The Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Philistines 40 years. Have you ever asked yourself, what is more valuable, your sight or God's? The way you view the world or the way God does? We're so kind of focused on viewing the world our way that often we don't think about the way that God views the world. The way Israel were living was not wrong in their eyes or in their sight. They were not evil in their own sight. But by their own perception, they thought most or all of their behavior was perfectly acceptable. What we see here is that the Bible is clear. Evil, what the Bible calls sin, is not what we think right or wrong is, not going against our conscience or violating my own personal standards or even a community standards. But what is evil in the eyes of the Lord is violating God's will for us. So much of our society tells us that only you can define what's right and wrong for you. In other words, My own eyes, my heart's feelings and my mind's perceptions are the only way to determine right and wrong. But it's just not livable. It doesn't make sense. Even if we didn't have the Bible, if evil is only determined by our own eyes, how could we tell what the Nazis were doing was wrong, that it was wrong to exterminate the Jews? How could we do that? See, they thought they were doing the human race a favour or even providing justice for past imagined wrongs. But once we admit that our own eyes are not sufficient for defining what is good and right, then we've got to ask, whose eyes are? Is evil defined by the eyes of the majority? Or the eye of the experts? The problem is, those eyes' views didn't avoid the Holocaust either. Now the Bible's answer is the right one. Sin Evil is defined as violating our relationship with God, violating the will of God for us. What God sees as sin, regardless of what we feel or what the experts say or what the culture agrees on, is still sin. But we must remember that the heart of their sin and ours is always idolatry. And idols are not always bad things, but they're often good things and we allow the good to take the place of God. So that the line between hard work and making an idol of work or, or, or loving your family and making an idol of it is a thin one. And idols by their very nature are deceitful. They tell us that we're being careful and sensible and wise to work so hard, even that we're being unselfish when in fact we've set that thing in God's place in our hearts and are doing evil in the only eyes in the universe that really count, God's eyes. 
At this moment, so many differing views are going on around the echo chambers of society. The particular struggles we face, the risk of vaccines, the risk of not vaccinating, the risk of losing our freedoms, the risk of laying down our freedoms. These are all prime opportunities to disguise our pride, our natural dislike for authority, our complacency and our apathy to disguise all those things for godliness. Whether we speak or stay silent, sin lurks. We might line up with what culture says, we might not. And, and we can use either of those to disguise our sinfulness. We need to ask ourselves and others, why am I really doing what I'm doing right now? Why am I really saying what I'm saying right now? Or why am I really staying quiet on this issue right now? Sin is deceptive. The points where it's sinful to disagree with culture, there'll be other points where it's sinful to agree with culture. What we need to be careful of, what we need to be slow and humble at, is working at the Scriptures to see what is right in God's eyes. That's what we need. Slow, careful, humble working at the Scriptures. Lovingly bouncing that off one another to carefully and consistently evaluate ourselves through our reflection of, on the Word of God and through re reflecting on ourselves and evaluating ourselves with personal accountability to others as well. That's why connect groups are so important. They're places that we apply the Word in community. Even if we can't meet at the moment in person, we can still catch up on Zoom and, and other great blessings God's given us to be able to still meet at this time. But they're important. We need to see how we live out the Word of God. We need to view the world through God's eyes and, and have that magnifying glass on ourselves. We need places we can ask others to call us out. See, we are experts at finding ways to rationalise our sin, to disguise it as, as godliness. When in the midst of Israel's sin, we hear a story of a child with great expectations. An angel appears to a barren woman and promises a child who would be, Judges 13 verse 7, a Nazarite to God from birth until the day of his death. Now, what is a Nazarite? Now, they ask, a people from Nazareth? No, they're not. A Nazarite is, is someone who's made a vow to God. It seems a little bit odd. It's found in number six, uh, if you want to check it up a little bit later. But the whole point of a Nazarite vow was a vow that someone would, would make to God to ask God for his special help during a crucial time. It was a sign that you were looking to God with great intensity and focus. Uh, as a, as, a, as a making this vow, you would keep your hair uncut and refrain from drinking from the fruit of the vine, whether that's alcoholic or not. And they were ways of showing that you were kind of in training toward a goal for God. And by refraining from touching a dead body, which is the other part of a Nazarite vow, you're adopting the kind of stringent rules, the ceremonial cleanliness for priests who weren't allowed to touch anything dead because they worked in God's house. At this point in, in God's history, in the tabernacle, the tent. They worked there every day and so they didn't want to be in, in contact with anything unclean because they were living before the presence of God every day. This child that we hear about with great expectation would be a Nazarite and come from a barren woman. Now in the Bible, we see there's something special about uh, what God does, particularly with barren women. He often works in the world through people whose existence in humanity is, is well, humanly speaking, impossible. <laughs> Isaac, the son God promised Abraham in Genesis 12, would be a blessing to the whole world, we hear that promise. He gets this promise that 
um, this son would be the start of a whole new nation. And Isaac was born to a barren woman. Samuel, whom, whom God would use to anoint the first two kings for his people, was born to a woman who'd been unable to bear children. John the Baptist is the start of, of the New Testament. Uh, the one who would announce the coming of the Lord Jesus himself was born to Elizabeth, who was barren and well along in years, Luke tells us. And then we've got Mary. Her pregnancy was impossible for a different reason. She's a virgin. In the birth of Jesus, the degree of miraculousness goes off the scale when Jesus steps onto the world scene. But the writer of Judges wants us to notice something special about Samson. In fact, God wants us to notice something special about Samson. That's why he's had this written down so much earlier. It's here so we might remember when Jesus comes that Jesus, like Samson, was special. But the unlike Samson, uh, who 13 verse 5 tells us would only begin the deliverance of Israel from the Philistines, Jesus' salvation is complete salvation. As the angel told Mary's fiancé Joseph, he will save his people from their sin, from their evil. There's something else we can learn from this encounter in chapter 13 as well. There's this weird interaction between Manoah, Samson's soon-to-be father, and the angel who brings this message of this child who would be born. Now, Manoah is, is amazed at the news. It's pretty amazing, right, that you're, you're going to have a child and this child will be special. But in verse 8, Manoah asks for more. And it's kind of classic. I think it's classic of what guys do. The angels already come. Now, normally, angels don't come to guys. This is not our normal expectation of what happens. But when angels come, people are overwhelmed. Um, in, in these instances, the, the angel tells them about a son and then disappears. Then Manoah does the typical dad thing. He's like, awesome, I'm going to have a kid. But then he goes, but now what do I do? Like when we had Nathaniel, our, our firstborn, uh, we had a birth plan, we had a cot and a car seat. All of that was already in prep for his arrival. We, we had him, we got him, we put him in the car, we took him home. And I remember standing in our land room going, now what do we do? Like no one preps you for what to do. Right? Manoah had a bit more forward thinking than I did. In verse 8, listen to what he says. Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, let the man of God you sent come again to us and teach us what we should do for the boy who will be born. Genius. Great prayer. Asking God to not just work out the birth plan, but how he can see this child raised. Now, some see Manoah's prayer here as some sort of lack of faith in God. He wants the angel to come back. It wasn't enough. But I don't think it is. Manoah assumes that the promise will come true, that a boy will be born. His request isn't for proof that he'll have a son, but for help on how to raise him. But like so often when we pray, God doesn't answer Manoah's prayer with what Manoah asked for. Instead, he gives him what he needs. Manoah asks in verse 12, When your words come true, what will be the boy's responsibilities and work? Literally, the Hebrew there is, what is to be the rule for the boy's life and work? Manoah wants a guidebook. And don't we all? Where is the guidebook on raising children? He, he, he wants a law on what he should do with his son, a, 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 a set, clear plan for how he can raise him the right way. Give me the law. Give me the rules, he's saying. But what Manoah gets instead is a glimpse of not what to do, but who God is. As Manoah offers a sacrifice to God and it goes up in flames before his eyes in verse 20, Manoah gets the picture loud and clear that God and what he is doing in all its intricacies is beyond understanding. It, it's too wonderful to comprehend. 
God is in control. He is powerful. He'll bring about his purposes. And there's something important in this for us. I don't want to make too much of it here, but rules never breed godliness. Rules never inclined Israel's heart to follow God. They just show them their rebellion and bred legalistic hearts. We don't need more rules. What we need is to know the ruler. Here, God is saying, and you need to know me and my character far more than you need more information. All the rules in the world will not be able to give you the direction in the innumerable decisions and choices you're going to have to make with your son. Now, only a deep understanding of who I am can give you the guidance you need to trust me. Samson's own life story is about to show us that Manoah and his wife fell quite, quite short in their child rearing. They failed to show and explain God's character to their son. And it's a warning for us who have children or will have children. Get your young children into a context where they regularly hear the things of Jesus in age-appropriate ways so that they can be shaped and nurtured in, in the things of Christ. So when they hit the age where they've got their own convictions, they'll have biblical convictions. They will know God, not a set of moral rules of rights and wrongs, but they'll know him and live in relationship with him. Now, of course, that means knowing how to live in response to him. But knowing him is key and core. Bringing your kids along to EV Kids has got to be a priority to see them at church growing, to, to read the Bible with them and to talk through life and to look at what culture is saying and what they're learning at school and applying the Bible to that. And as your kids transition into a youth age, we need to see this as vital to make sure your kids are going there as well. Um, researchers tell us that children, once they get to the age of 10, need others outside the family home to be godly role models uh, because we start um, kind of pinning our, our, our modeling on others other than just our parents. And that's why we see even youth is so important to have others outside the family home who are godly and will model to the, the youth of EV what it is to know Jesus. God's message to Manoah and his wife. It isn't just a message to parents, though. It's a message to all of us. See, we think we need rules, but what we really need is to know God. God does not and will not give us a guidebook for life, for every twist and turn and doubt and decision in our lives. He gives us something much better. He gives us himself. He gives us his spirit in us and his word to mold and shape and grow and change us. And just as children mature from when they are young, where they need to do what they're told and have more rules, to mature adults who um, kind of have incorporated the values that you've given them as a child, so God's people mature throughout history as God has revealed more of himself to us. Now, the Christians in the New Testament receive far fewer rules and regulations than the believers in the Old Testament did. You've just got to read Exodus and Leviticus to work that out. In the Old Testament, so much of what you could wear and eat and do was all prescribed. On the priest's ephod, which was that breastplate we saw uh, last week, the week before that was turned into a breastplate, the ephod was a special kind of vest that was worn to make decisions where the Urim and Thummim, which God had given to them, would give them a yes and no answer to direct questions that they asked of the priest to God. I mean, there's a sense where I go, I wish I had that. I wish I had something that I could ask that would tell me a direct answer to, to the questions I asked God. And, and there's something attractive about that. 
But to think that that is what I need would be a mistake. Because it would be a deferring to external rules rather than a relationship, a mature relationship with the maker. The Apostle Paul says that the Christian is not to be conformed to the world around, but rather transformed by the renewing of your mind. We don't get lots of prescriptions. We do, though, through the word of God and his spirit, get God and enjoy knowing the mind of Christ. What we can look at is rescue on the cross and his, rescue and his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God. And we see as we recognize who Jesus is, the character of God much more clearly than even the greatest heroes in the Old Testament ever could. We don't need a rule book, but the ruler himself who's spoken in his word. We get to know him. Well, with such great expectations of this child, when we finally get to meet Samson, he turns out to be a great failure. He's a failure. He's violent, impulsive, sexually addicted, emotionally immature, self-centered kind of thug. Look at what happens in chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah and saw a young Philistine woman there. He went back and told his father and mother, I've seen a young Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. <laughs> what is this guy? Right? Now, I take it that his mum and dad can remember what the angel said. You don't kind of forget that sort of thing. He's supposed to deliver them from the Philistines, not marry them. But his father and mother said to him, can't you find a young woman among your relatives or among any of our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines for a wife? But Samson told his father, get her for me. She is the right one for me. <laughs> Literally, he said, she is right in my eyes. In my eyes. Now, the word uncircumcised is actually key here because circumcision was a sign that a family was in relationship or, or, or covenant promise with God and his people. They were part of God's people. God, he wasn't against just interracial marriage, that there's something wrong with that. He was against interfaith marriage and people pulling through marriage people away from the true and living God. The question remains for us, as we see more and more of Samson's character, how can God use such a pig-headed, self-indulgent oaf like Samson? How, how's he going to do this? Well, I don't know if you noticed, chapter 13 started with a familiar phrase that Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But then we miss the next familiar refrain. We saw last week Israel's false repentance. They cried out to God. They said, sorry, not sorry, but they still said sorry to God and they cried out with him. This week, no repentance at all. There is no crying out to God at all. The Philistine culture and the culture Israel had, had become the same. Israel had just become like the nations around them. And so in their own sight, in their own view, they weren't doing anything wrong. They didn't need to cry out to God. They had so succumbed to the Philistines far more completely and profoundly than any of their previous enslavements had seen them. They were just like, this is normal life. We're living their way. We're happy with it. In the past, Israel groaned and agonized under the occupation by foreign powers. But now people are virtually unconscious of their enslavement. Because its nature is that of cultural accommodation. The Israelites don't groan and resist their captors now because they've completely adopted and adapted to the idols of the Philistines. 
like Samson himself, the Israelites were eager to marry into the Philistine society, probably as a way to move up in the culture. The Israelites no longer had any recognizable culture of their own. They have no way of serving the Lord, one based on serving the Lord. They definitely didn't have. And I think the same temptations are here for us today, aren't they? The temptation to say that the natural world is all there is, that the supernatural is impossible. When we say we think Jesus rose from the dead, people laugh and we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, well, it's just kind of a, it's like a, a spiritually rose from the dead or, or we play it away. The temptation to become like the culture around us is huge. We so often bow down to the modern idols of personal choice and freedom. We go, but I didn't choose that. And we think that that really matters, but in the end, it doesn't. When do we ever choose anything? When did you choose to be born? We don't. No, God is in control. Or what about the idea of relative truth, that truth is just relative to whoever sees it. Whatever they view, seeing from their own perspective, that there is no objective truth. What's good for you is good for you if you think it's good for you. You see that play out in all sorts of ways. Now, the moment that we see that the work of the church is trying to command the state around us or impose um, what the state should do, we've lost Jesus' mission. He says, my battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers in the heavenly realms. Forcing the world to conform to Christian morals is, is, is a wrong way of viewing it as well. That won't save the world. It will just make it more legalistic, more like what Manoah wanted. It didn't turn out well for Israel, did it? Now, becoming like the world around us, submitting to its ethics and values, becoming a therapeutic help to society, loved by society, is just as bad. It means we've not pointed society to the creator and sustainer of all in Jesus. We must, we must live differently to the world around us and hold out that the kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus and not just slip into being like the world and living for its idols and gods. But Israel and the Philistines are so intermeshed at this point that they're almost indistinguishable. And that is how God uses Samson. In all his weakness, his sinfulness and desire-driven immaturity, God uses this man to pry the two nations apart so Israel might once again be seen as God's people distinct from the nations around them. What we see here is just how amazing God is. (laughs) He's so faithful to his promises that he not only fulfills them in spite of people's sin, he can fulfill his promises through people's sin. He uses their own sinfulness to bring about deliverance. And we see this later on as Jesus steps onto the world scene. As Peter says in Acts 2.36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. God is so powerful, so merciful, so different from us that he can work through even our rebellion against him to bring about his purposes. There's a sense where we just need to sit back and trust him. How amazing God is. But in all of Samson's brokenness, we read that God is still at work. Why can Samson kill the lion? The spirit of the Lord came upon him in power, 14.6 tells us. Why is he able to strike down the 30 Philistines and steal their clothes? The spirit of the Lord came upon him, verse 19 tells us. God is giving Samson superhuman strength. The one thing he needs, other than his own character flaws, 
for him to cause the division between Israel and the Philistines, which God's people desperately need, even though they don't realize they need it. God's starting to save his people by divorcing them from their marriage to their idols and the world around them. And it's going to hurt. This isn't an opportunity, though, to play down theological accuracy or pretend it doesn't matter how we live. Some people see the way God works through our sinfulness and goes, oh, well, should we just keep sinning so God's grace and glory might continue all the more? (laughs) Paul says in Romans, by no means. Now, what we see here is that God is in the business of using our failures as the foundation for his success. (laughs) God is so amazing. We must not put him in a box. He'll always act in line with what he says, not what we think he might say. He'll always use who he wants and the circumstances he is sovereign over. Mysteriously, often unseen and usually far beyond our comprehension, God works through the free and very often flawed choices people make so that in all things he might work for the good of those who love him. All of these are an opportunity to trust him, to trust his word, to live in response to the certainty he gives. Now, it'd be remiss of me here not to pause and ask each one of us, where are we, like Samson, letting our desires lead us away from God? Is it the pool to be successful, the pool to be satisfied, the pool to be secure and safe or have importance or or pleasure? Is it pornography and passion that's drawing us in, that the allure of someone different, someone new, someone who is not our spouse? When we place our passions in something or someone other than God, first and foremost, we miss the joy of knowing Him, of recognizing who He is and what He's done for us. We fall into the slavery of serving our man-made idols and desires which will not deliver Not when we serve them as God, not when we we love them in in the wrong way and put them at the prime and ultimate position in our lives. Friends, learn from Samson. Find your satisfaction in the one who made you and loves you and saves you. Well, at this point in the story, the violence is ratcheting up. Retaliation after retaliation without forgiveness and reconciliation. You know, it's a familiar story to us. Some of us have that happening within our marriages or within our family structures where someone says something and someone says something else and we just keep going and going and it escalates and angry and cold. We see it between nations as well. Well, Here, each action prompts a reaction, which brings its own reaction again and this seemingly unbreakable cycle continues. There's impossible riddles that Samson gives and impossible acts that happen and there's horrific betrayal. Samson's own wife betrays him. And it sets off a war between these two communities. They're at one another. Samson kills 30 men to pay off his debt. He calls his wife a heifer. Don't know how that's going to go a little bit later. He then sets on fire a whole city with 300 foxes. Right? The story is worth a read as you go through and read it all from chapter 13 to the end of 16. It's amazing what goes on and the depths that it descends to. But as we read chapter 15, things have been blown out of proportion on a huge scale. But this time... It's the Philistines and Israel who team up against God's promised saviour. You're like, what? What is going on here? This is kind of unexpected. Look at verse 9 of chapter 15. The Philistines went up and camped at Judah and raided Lehi. So the men of Judah said, 
Why have you attacked us? They replied, we've come to tie Samson up and pay him back for what he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah, that's Israelites, God's people, went to the cave at the rock of Etam and they asked Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines rule us? What have you done to us? I've done to them what they did to me, he answered. They said to him, we've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Then Samson told them, swear to me that you yourselves won't kill me. No, they said, we won't kill you, but we will tie you up securely and hand you over to them. So they tied him up with two new ropes and led him away from the rock. (laughs) Here we see the great sacrifice. Israel may bear the name of God's people, but they would rather live at peace with the world and worship their idols than be free to worship God. They would rather cut down their own rescuer than risk confrontation with the world. How often we do the same, don't we? We pull back from defending Jesus, from pointing out lovingly and humbly that he's the king, that he did die and rise again, and we just become like the nations around us. Israel is so loving the way the Philistine world is that they tie up their own judge, their own saviour, and they get another nation to kill him. Does that sound familiar? I heard of another saviour who came, whose own people handed him over to another group of people who tied him to a cross and killed him. Samson, he snaps the ropes, grabs a donkey's jawbone, seems to have left his vow to be a Nazarite behind, not to touch dead animals, doesn't care anymore. Then he kills a thousand men, a thousand men with a donkey's jawbone. And that's crazy. If all the Samson movies are true, and of course they are, this is one impressive man. I mean, outwardly, he's got the skills. If Jephthah was kind of Vin Diesel, Samson must be like Thor, right? He's, he's good with the looks and the ladies. Who needs a hammer when you've got a donkey's jawbone, right? Samson is a legend. He is just able to do whatever. He wipes out these thousand, these people. Then, for the first time in the story, Samson speaks to God. We're like, wow, is something changing? Is this what is going to happen? Is God going to work through him in a new way here? Look at verse 18. Samson became very thirsty and called out to the Lord. You've accomplished this great victory through your servant. It's all good so far. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? (laughs) So God split a hollow place in the ground at Lehi and water came out of it. After Samson drank, his strength returned and he revived. That is why he named it Hakori Spring, which is still in Lehi today. And he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Samson, basically in his prayer, demands God help him and complains that he hasn't helped him so far. It's remarkably clueless of him since it's God's spirit who has allowed him to to be rescued from the lion, from rescued from the lost bet and now from a thousand Philistines. Yet God continues to work for his glory and purposes. We read that he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. But Samson's leadership is not like the earlier judges. He's not saved Israel from the spiritual or physical oppression. It's still in the days of the Philistines. What it shows us is that while Samson's outer man was impressive and and God did use him to bring about some of his purposes to love and care for his people, the inner man is infantile and broken and weak. 1 Timothy 4 tells us that physical training is of some value, 
But godliness has value for all things. In the life of Samson, there's a word to all of us here, but particularly to us men. Too many of us care about our outward appearance far more than our inward godliness. For, for many of us, we're still teenagers in our spiritual, spirituality. We're either arrogant know-it-alls or we're apathetic sloths. We sit back and, and we, we don't kind of take the word of God seriously. We don't live it out. Oh, outwardly, we, we have the outward leadership skills in life or we think about how to do those things well. But we can so easily fail to lead ourselves to grow in godliness. Guys, that's got to change. Now, ladies, there's probably something in that here for you as well. I don't want to you know, assume to be able to tell you what to do or how to do that here. But so often we are focused on our external deeds and appearance. While inside, our love and thirst for God is dwindling. What the story of Samson shows us is it's possible to have the gifts of the Spirit without the fruit of the Spirit. You can be gifted by God in many ways, but not use those gifts in line with the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians tells us the fruit of the Spirit is singular, fruit singular, and includes all of these. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. It's not a list that we pick one or two from, but characteristics we get to display because we've met the risen Jesus. Samson is a model of a gifted thug. But God still uses and works through him, despite his sinfulness and lack of self-control. But God tells us that gifts without love, without the fruit of the Spirit, that means we are like a clanging cymbal, a noisy gong. Ugh! Better be full of the fruit of the Spirit than full of the gifts of the Spirit. But we want both, don't we? We want to be using the gifts God's given us for His glory in a way that is right and good. So how do we do that? We need to just start with the simple things of working at our daily habits. Uh, working at spending time in the Word and letting the picture of who God is and what He's done shape us, His actions in the past, that we might know Him. We need to think about stepping up in, in, into serving, whether that be in the world or outside of church or within church to grow and build others up, not for the glory, but sacrificially. We need to work at developing the strength and character, becoming more and more like Jesus, taking seriously God's Word, not being apathetic, not being arrogant. If we're not in the Word daily, we're going to remain infants in our knowledge of God. <laughs> I need to get over myself in this. I make so many excuses for, oh, I've got this thing to do or that thing to do. I just need to set up some discipline of spending time in the Word just every day, a little portion in the mornings. Maybe that's you as well. I'd love you to be praying for me in this. It's so easy in ministry to get caught up by helping others work through this stuff and not to be in good habits myself, to be growing more and more and more. So often I can just be satisfied with where I'm at rather than knowing more of the depths of who God is and what He's done. How can we see God for who He is and know Jesus in what He's done for us if we don't listen to Him? If we don't view the world through His eyes, if we shut our eyes to Him and just say, I will view the world my way. Well, as we get to the last chapter of the story of Samson, it's Samson's sight that gets him into trouble. But we're going to see in the end, he has great sight. 16 verse 1. Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute and went to bed with her. <laughs> what has this guy learnt? Nothing. 
while his physical strength will once again rescue him from his own weakness for women, the next difficulty he gets into will be his last. Look at verse 4. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman named Delilah, who lived in the Sorek Valley. The Philistine leaders went to her and said, Persuade him to tell you where his great strength comes from so we can overpower him, tie him up, make him helpless. Each of us will then give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Wow. Delilah at this point has got the leaders of the Philistines coming to her and they're asking her for something. I'm going to be special, she's thinking. And then she's going to be rich. She's going to be rolling in the silver. See, Samson and Delilah are the extreme case of what it is to use one another rather than serve one another. Samson, he wants sex, let's be honest. Delilah, she wants the money and fame. They they say to each other, oh, I'm with you because I love you. But what they mean is I'm with you because you're so useful to me. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of passion and romance, but it was all done out of a motive of self-enhancement rather than self-giving or for the growth of another. Delilah is is with the Philistine. She wants her fame and her money. And so she nags him and nags him and nags him until he finally gives in. And you've got to ask, Samson, are you so stupid? Like, seriously? You know, what will make you weak? He tells her something. Then the the Philistines are upon you. Ah, it's just such a crazy story. It makes me go, was Samson dumb? I don't think he was. See, he finally tells her the real thing. But I think he tells her that the reason that he has his strength is because his hair's long is because he thinks deep down, I, I've given up on every other vow. Why is cutting my hair going to affect my strength? I think this is just who I am. I think I'm the man. I don't think he's dumb at this point. I, I think he just thinks just like, the, you know, touching a dead animal didn't stop him in any other places. A donkey's jawbone didn't affect him slaying all those people. So when his hair gets cut, he'll stand and go, look at my strength. <laughs> He'd come to believe that his strength was simply his. No matter what he did or how he lived, he would not lose the power. It's gone to his head. How often do we have our gifts go to our head? (laughs) We think it's in our strength or our power that we can do what we can do or look the way we can or have the opportunities that we have or make the money that we have. It's got nothing to do with us. His self-deception wasn't just psychological though. It was also theological. Samson was unable to see how dependent he was on God's undeserved gifts and grace. He'd come to see his strength as a right, not a gift of God's mercy. It's so easy to presume upon the grace of God, isn't it? But what we see in this last episode is not really a contest between Samson and the Philistines, but God, Yahweh, and the pretend God, Dagon. Well, it seems that Dagon has won. The Philistines had tied up Samson and scooped out his eyeballs. So now Samson can't see. And they'd brought Samson to Dagon's temple. The Philistines knew nothing of the God who does the unexpected. Remember Ehud? They knew nothing of the God whose strength is made perfect in weakness. Like Gideon, who only had 300 men. They knew nothing of the God who always keeps his promises. That God had said at the beginning of this whole story that Samson would be a Nazarite to the day of his death. 13 verse 7. God's abandonment of Samson could only be temporary. 
for God's promise was sure to stand irrespective of how Samson might despise it. God's grace, his, his mercy to us, his love for us is so overflowing. Even to the chief of sinners, he keeps his promises. The Apostle Paul says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 2, 13. <laughs> We're in the center of Dagon's temple with a statue of Dagon himself on top of the structure. And we read this, chapter 16, verse 26. Samson said to the young man who was leading him by the hand, because he can't see, right? He doesn't know what to do. Lead me where I can feel the pillars supporting the temple so I can lean against them. The temple was full of men and women. All the leaders of the Philistines were there. And about 3,000 men and women were on the roof watching Samson entertain them. Samson calls out to the Lord, Lord God, he's praying again, please remember me. He's like, oh, <laughs> strengthen me, God, just once more with one act of vengeance. Let me pay back the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson prays again, but it's not about God's glory, about his own. But he does this time use the twisted desires of the human heart and you see Samson's faith in God. He trusts that God is the one who can do it now. And God uses these desires he has for vengeance to bring about his plans. It doesn't mean that, that Samson was right in doing this, but God uses all sorts of brokenness, all sorts of sin and evil to bring about his plans. He's never behind it. We are, but he can work through it. Now for the first time, the strong Samson who could see all and know all is blind and weak needs to rely on God's strength. It's the only time he does it. And Hebrews 11 counts Samson as one of the great ones of faith. And this is the only section where he actually depends on God. So it must be this moment where he comes to God and depends on him for strength to do what he had been set out to do. Verse 29. Samson took hold of the two middle pillars supporting the temple and leaned against them, one on his right hand and the other on his left. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. He pushed with all his might and the temple fell on the leaders and all the people in it. And those he killed at his death were more than those he killed in his life. The man who couldn't see finally sees that it's God who gives the strength. It's God who brings about his plans and purposes. And no matter what we do, we cannot see God's plans and purposes come to fruition. There's no way that we can see them not come to fruition. Here is this picture at the very end with his arms outstretched, bringing the enemy down in full force on himself. God had shown in the past that he could deliver Israel with an army of willing volunteers. He'd also shown that he could save with as few as 300. But when the Spirit of God came upon Samson, God showed that he had no need for even 300. He could deliver with just one. One with his arms stretched out wide. One through whom and in his death he would save them all. Samson's a leader, drastically flawed like you and like me. Yet God still uses him. However, there was another leader who, who also came from a special birth, who like Samson died with his arms outstretched. But unlike Samson, did not deserve what he got, but took what you and I deserved. As Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't a pretend God he brought down, but Satan himself. 
It wasn't a, a, a nation around to have some political victory. It was to show the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, to show the whole universe God was God. Colossians 2.13 says this, When you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in Jesus. The Samson narrative begins with a strong man who's revealed to be weak, but it ends with a weak man who is stronger than ever he was before. The story of Samson is the gospel It's the shadow of what Jesus came to do with a better saviour, a better ruler, one who acted rightly. Jesus became weak to become strong. He died so we could live. But there is, of course, one last crucial difference between Samson and Jesus. With Samson's burial, his rule was finished. His story was over. But with Jesus' burial... In many ways, the story has only just begun. He rules beyond the grave, not just before it. He's been raised to the right hand of the Father and will come again. And when he returns, he will put all things right and judge the world. And he will rule at that point in a new earth. And we will see him. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We will see him fully. The one who became weak to save will rule in strength with power and eternity. And so Paul says in Colossians 2, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. Becoming and continuing as a Christian is about the same pattern, becoming weak to become strong. Only those who admit that they aren't right before God, that we we are broken and sinful, can receive the gift of Christ's perfection and righteousness. Only those that know their life and strength are theirs purely because of the gift of God. They're the only ones who aren't living within the grip of fear. They're the ones who are going, oh, God has given me my gifts and abilities and are using them for his glory. Not because I'm strong, but because he is. Only those who know their own weaknesses are able to know God's strength, that he is the one who has secured our future, which means we can speak the truth in love and enable us to avoid the pitfalls of Samson's life. Pride, lust, anger, vengefulness and complacency. Now it's as we look to the cross, we see Jesus as the man of sorrows, the one who died in our place and has secured our future, that we see the saviour that we need. So friends, brothers and sisters, look to Jesus. See the world through his eyes. See him. Do not worry about your view of the world, but let your view be shaped and moulded and controlled and enlightened by the God who died in our place and rose again and will come back again to judge the living and the dead. Live knowing Him. Let's pray. Father God, thanks so much today that through the story of Samson, we get to see Jesus. 
We admit that we are broken, that we have so many parts of our lives that we want to turn to away from you and view the world through our own eyes rather than yours. Help us not to go to the culture around us and assimilate so we just look like the world. Help us not to try and control the culture right now that we, we might think that it's moralism that will save us, but let us stand clearly pointing people to Jesus, to the hope we have in him, his death and resurrection, and to the day when he comes back. Help us to live with that vision and picture boldly, lovingly, with the fruit of the Spirit. Prompt us and provoke us to be growing more and more like him every day we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.